0: for personal protection, everybody needs to get this vaccine, not only for uh, to protect others, but to protect themselves. Hey
1: everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. It is Thursday, December 10th, 2020. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson. Sitting on one side of a conference call in Minnesota while my co-host Jeremy Holden joins me from North Carolina. Hello, Jeremy.
2: Hey, Mike, how you doing this week?
1: Doing well, thank you. We were originally going to speak with Abram Belauskas for this episode, but he's been busy following the big news coming out of the US House of Representatives as on Tuesday, They voted to pass the ALS Disability Insurance Act, which the Senate had passed the previous week, waiving the five month waiting period that people uh, must endure before accessing social security disability benefits. We said it last week, it remains true this week. This is incredible news for the ALS community, Jeremy.
2: It is a a long, hard fight to make this happen. And you know we heard from senators on the floor last week talking about the Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse out in Rhode Island talking about how it can look easy when the vote is this overwhelming, but that this was the result of a lot of long, hard, necessary work to to build momentum to get to this point. Senator Whitehouse and many other lawmakers tipping their hat to the ALS advocates who who come out to Washington D.C. every year educating lawmakers about the need for this, but no way to uh, downplay this one. It's a it's a huge win for ALS advocates and to everybody listening who has worked the phones, gone out to Capitol Hill to to plead their case with lawmakers. Congratulations, this is a huge win goes to the president's desk now for signature and and, and no reason to believe that if this isn't going to become law, and, and, and again, just just a monumental victory for ALS advocates everywhere.
1: It really is. That can't be overstated. And we will have Abram on again soon to kind of recap that and talk about next steps. But this week, uh, we did want to pivot a little bit because we had an opportunity to line up Dr. Clifton Gooch, a neurologist from Tampa, Florida, who has quite a bit of knowledge on the subject of COVID-19 vaccines. And that's something that is very much in the news, uh, as it should be. And uh, Jeremy, we, we learned a lot from the doctor.
2: We did, Dr. Gooch, a, a member of the ALS Association's National Board of Trustees, and, and as you said, Mike, an acclaimed neurologist down in Florida. A developing story, uh, just earlier this week we learned that the. Uh, FDA found the covid vaccines from Pfizer and moderna had hit critical tests uh, and, and every indication right now looks like those vaccines should be approved and and put into the market all indications maybe by the end of this month so uh, an important time to bring on a guest to kind of walk us through what we know and and frankly dr. gooch talked about the implications for the ALS community as they consider what's next in the fight against covid 19
1: that's right that's important to note I know a lot of our listeners who are impacted by ALS, uh, those living with the disease and their caregivers have questions about the vaccine and and sort of what they should be talking to their physicians about. And Dr. Gooch does get into that, part of a very robust uh, and enlightening conversation. So let's listen to that now. We're joined today by the chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of South Florida Health's Marsani College of Medicine and Tampa General Hospital Endowed Chair in Neurology, as well as the vice president of research at Tampa General Hospital, Dr. Clifton Gooch. Good morning, Dr. Gooch. Thanks for being with us on Connecting ALS. Oh, thank you, Mike. It's a great pleasure to be here. We've been looking forward to chatting with you about a topic we've never explicitly addressed on our show, but it's something that has huge implications for the entire world in 2020. And it's been in the news for good reason. I'm talking, of course, about the forthcoming vaccines for COVID-19. There are a number of lenses that we want to view this from, but if we could, Dr. Gooch, Let's start with the data that we have so far. What do we know about the uh, safety and efficacy of these vaccines that we're hearing about? Because I know some folks have the questions about fast tracking, et cetera.
0: Right, exactly. And I do wanna take a, a one step back uh, before I get to that and just say that the the fact that we have these vaccines in this incredibly brief window of about nine months is nothing short of a miracle. Mm. I, I really compare this to the Apollo mission. In the past, vaccines took 10, 20 years to develop, uh, five years to test. So the fact that we literally have a vaccine within less than twelve months from starting point is is a miracle, and it really shows you what massive international investment in research can accomplish in a very short period of time. Just wanted to make that point. Yes, the the race for the vaccine has been uh, pretty amazing, and I, I I believe that there has been rapid progress. And I know as your question alluded to, that that gives some people the hackles because they think, oh gosh, it's been rushed through, and is it safe, and and uh, you know, can I count on it? Well, I will just uh, wanna describe the two leading vaccine candidates because they are new technology and then get to their safety and efficacy. The two leading candidates, of course, come from uh, Moderna and Pfizer, and they both are based on the same uh, technology. Uh, this is uh, what they refer to as RNA vaccines. And essentially what they do is much like the virus, they, have the, they commandeer the cells to produce a part of the virus, not the part that infects you, but the, the part that the immune system is able to best recognize. And that are these spikes that stick up off the virus like pins on a pincushion, And these spikes are absolutely critical for the virus to infect cells. So the immune system recognizes those very readily, produces its own weapons against them and that's how it takes out the virus. So these vaccines have the cells produce just the spikes without the rest of the virus. So you don't get infected, but you do have these little spikes that are appearing in your bloodstream and the immune system recognizes them and goes to town and develops antibodies. Theoretically, this kind of approach would be even safer than routine vaccines because when you, uh, in the past, we would, use, uh, we would use dead, inactivated virus or sometimes live virus that had been uh, crippled uh, to induce immunity in patients. Those are the two most common vaccine strategies of the past. And you can imagine that those kinds of immune responses sometimes go off track and uh, can cause other problems though overall the track record for vaccines is amazingly safe and they've really saved millions of lives literally millions of lives over the over the last 100 years so these viruses were put through the usual paces. Both of them have uh, been now tested in trials of tens of thousands of people. Mm. And uh, testing a vaccine is a little bit tricky because what you have to do is you have to give the vaccine uh, itself to a group of people. And then you give essentially a, a saltwater vaccine, which is, doesn't contain the actual vaccine as a placebo, to another group. And then you have to wait to see who gets infected in each group. So, you really need a, a hot spot, and we have uh, unfortunately a lot of those now. So, these vaccines were able to be tested and rolled out very quickly. So, what they did in these trials, as they always do, is they looked at the number of side effects and the severity of the side effects in both the patients who received the actual vaccine and those patients who received the placebo vaccine. And that's how you assess whether side effects are significant or not and related to the vaccine, because honestly, uh, the, the mind is a powerful thing. It can make you uh, actually think you're getting better or sometimes even make you better physically. And it can also make you think you're having side effects sometimes. So it's important to have that placebo group in place. Right. What's amazing about these vaccines, really amazing results from what has been reported so far in the media. Now, granted, these are based upon press releases because we don't have the full articles yet. They've not been published But the efficacy rates, which is to say the rate at which these vaccines stop infection is nothing short of amazing. It's it's really, it appears to be around 95% for both of them. And that's incredible. So most vaccines are below that level. The influenza vaccine that we get every year is somewhere around 70, 80%, for example, as a comparison, point of comparison. So this is really far beyond our wildest dreams in terms of the effectiveness of the vaccine. And it's great because it means that fewer people have to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. Now, in terms of side effects, each of these vaccines was carefully monitored and uh, no what we call serious adverse events or SAEs occurred in any of the participants. None. Zero. According to the reports we have so far, which is also pretty amazing. There were some other great pieces of news out there, too, in terms of efficacy. The vaccine seemed to work as well in older people over the age of 65 who are particularly vulnerable to the virus as it did in younger people. So they had similar levels of immunity. Not true with all vaccines, by the way. And the other really incredible thing, which is what we all had truly hoped for, not a single person in either trial who got the vaccine and did get coronavirus got sick and had to go to the hospital. They wow. had mild illness, all of them. So th- this is just astonishing. I mean, none of us could have ever imagined. I mean, if you could make your, your Christmas wish list about what you would hope a vaccine <clears throat> would do, this is it. Now, of course you say, well, that's what the company says, but you know, uh, but maybe I don't trust the company. They're making money and you know, maybe they're they're inflating things for their stocks or whatever. Mm. This is where the FDA comes in. And uh, I have served on the Peripheral and Central Nervous System Advisory uh, Committee for uh, for drugs with the FDA and I've done uh, these panels and I've done these reviews. And let me tell you, it is a very rigorous process. And what they do is they assemble a panel of experts related to the question at hand and the drug at hand and the disease at hand. International authorities who are taken from all across the country who get together and go over all of the evidence related to the drug with a fine tooth comb. And let me tell you that these people are natural skeptics. Okay, they are. These are scientists. And in science, we assume that things aren't going to work. That's our, that's our default mode. It's called the null hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And we do our experiments. We start out assuming it's not going to work. And then if it does work, we, we, we're, we're surprised and we have to analyze it, make sure that it really worked. And then we're convinced. We're natural skeptics. So these guys, if anything, they have a bias towards not believing it rather than believing it. That's, that's how we're trained. So they go over everything with a fine tooth comb and they hold it up to the most rigorous possible standards of evidence and they say, okay, does it work or not work? They look at the the data, they have access to all of it. And again, I've done this myself. And then they vote and say, yeah, it looks good or no, it doesn't look good. And then the FDA makes the final decision, but they virtually always go with the recommendations of this independent panel. So I trust the FDA. Again, I've worked for them in this capacity. I've been on the inside, and so if they declare it safe and effective, I will believe them, and I'll say they've validated the company's data. Eventually, the papers will come out, but if they say that, I will be one of the first in line to get this vaccine. I do want to talk about though the fact that there are some side effects from the from the vaccine. It's Mm -hmm. not completely free of any uh, of any kind of side effects. Sure. What are they? Well. There are the kinds of things that we often see with the influenza vaccine, which is to say, you know, injection site soreness. So if you guys have gotten your influenza vaccine, you may notice your, your arm is sore, deltoid muscle for a couple of days, sometimes sometimes mild flu-like symptoms, which can be fatigue, you know, muscle aches, feeling like you're coming down with the flu, kind of like those first couple of days before you get it, you're, you're feeling off, you're feeling tired. And this seems to happen with this uh, vaccine uh, in up to 20 to 40% of people, so a little bit higher than in the uh, influenza vaccine, at least in terms of the flu-like syndrome. Sometimes low-grade fever accompanies it as well. So this has led to the recommendation uh, from a number of uh, different sources that you might want to plan to take a day or two off after each of these vaccines. Mm. It's a two-hit vaccine, so you have to get one hit. I believe that the Pfizer is one hit separated by four weeks in the second hit. Uh, the Moderna is three weeks in between, and then you're not fully immunized until you until three to four weeks have elapsed after the second dose. Okay. So that means that from dose number one to full immunization is going to be two months for the Pfizer vaccine in six weeks for the uh, Moderna. So you'll have to go through this twice. Uh, it's you know, it'll be it, for some people about 20-40% you'll have that little flu-like syndrome. Shouldn't be a big deal, you know, we're not anticipating that it's going to cause big problems for you certainly far less uh, of a bad experience than having the coronavirus itself. So people need to be aware of that. And here at USF and other places we're actually planning to kind of rotate people in, in in terms of getting the vaccination so that we don't have a bunch of people who might be taking a day off at the same time, so we can keep things running uh, in the health system. But sure. but I, I tell my own parents about this. You know, I they're in their 80s, and I say, you know, you guys need to get this vaccine just as soon as you possibly can. They're ready to go. Uh, they understand it, and certainly. I myself and 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 my family, as soon as we can get it, we're gonna get it.
2: Yeah, and I wanna talk about that as, as soon as we can get it. You know, you mentioned Dr. Gooch that you'd be first in line, uh, your your parents are ready to get it, but we, we're learning from news reports that we're not just all gonna be able to line up on day one. And get our first dose. So, what are we hearing? What do we need to know about the way this is going to be rationed and doled out? Who's going to determine the waiting list, and what's that going to look like?
0: Yeah, good question. Hot topic in the news right now, uh, which we'll come to in a second. But there, there, it's an evolving situation. So, about six or six months ago, the federal government. Uh, decided that it was going to place bets on five of the vaccines that seem to be the most promising candidates. Some of those, by the way, are still in development. There are numerous vaccine trials that are coming along, but none of them appear, you know, uh, imminently ready to, to be to be approved at the present time. But, but in any case, the, the government's actually purchased and made contracts with all these companies for large numbers of doses. For Moderna and Pfizer, it was 100 million doses each. Now, remember, divide that by two because everybody has to have two doses. So mm-hmm. that means that it's 50 million people vaccinated with the Moderna and 50 million with Pfizer under the, the U.S. government contracts. Those were promises, uh, promissory notes, really, from the company that when the vaccine was approved, that they would provide that number of vaccines to the United States at a relatively early phase. Now, the European Union put 200 million, an order for 200 million down with Pfizer, you know, because they felt like it was a better candidate and it was. So what's happening right now with the Pfizer vaccine is that it's going before the FDA uh, for its uh, final decision, I think on the 10th, which is two days from now. FDA, I'm sure, will make a Rapid decision. All indications are that it will be approved. Then, after that, uh, distribution will begin with whatever doses are available. I've heard varying reports myself about the number of doses that are going to be available before the end of December, but the early figure was 20 million. Mm -hmm. However, recently I've heard it may be less than that. Uh, I, I don't know. But they're going to distribute the vaccine according to state population. So, big, big states like Florida or Texas or New York or California. Are going to get more doses because they have more people, but it's going to be per capita distribution, which seems fair. And then the states themselves will have the final authority as to how to distribute the vaccine. So the CDC has come up with a list of guidelines as has a number of other medical bodies, you know, including the national Academy of medicines coming up with theirs. They'll probably be all about the same. And and, and the states will probably generally follow the recommendations, but there will be some variation. I'll talk about what's happening here in Florida as an example in a second. So what are those, uh, those recommendations and how it's going to be distributed? Well, first of all, the military is supposed to be involved in, in helping to distribute the the vaccine, the vaccine, uh, this vaccine's. Um finicky. It has the problem that it has to be kept at minus 80 degrees centigrade, which is really, really, really cold. And uh, ordinary freezers will not come remotely close to this. So that means that we have to have a continuous supply chain that provides minus 80 degree temperatures all the way from the from the storage to the warehouse to the trucks to the uh, the facility where the vaccine is going to be administered. And I think it only lasts 12 hours out of minus 80 degrees C temperatures. So that's a challenge and has required a lot of infrastructure building and uh, Operation Warp Speed actually is a the military to try to help with this, so hopefully they have their act together and it will be distributed to the states accordingly. Once it gets to the states, the states will each have their own plans of distribution to population centers and hospitals, and they have the freedom really to distribute it in the way that they want to distribute it. In almost every case that I've heard about so far, including Florida's, which is where I am, the groups that will be prioritized are primarily elderly, especially nursing home patients and uh, healthcare workers, particularly frontline healthcare workers. So depending upon the number of doses that we actually receive in the beginning, those doses will be going to those groups. Here in Florida, our governor has prioritized nursing homes above everything. And so the nursing homes are probably going to get, the nursing home residents are going to get their vaccines first. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, of course, they're at great risk, as you probably know. Uh, Some nursing homes have lost 40 or 50 percent of their residents to this Mm -hmm. virus because of epidemics within the nursing homes. And then the healthcare workers, for obvious reasons, who are encountering patients uh, need to be immunized. so that they can continue their work. We don't want our hospitals to be overwhelmed. You know, overwhelming the hospitals with COVID takes two forms. One is you overwhelm the physical facilities, but what people haven't thought about is overwhelming the workforce uh, as the workforce gets sick, and that's another problem. So most states are doing that. Vulnerable patients who are not elderly, uh, and that would include uh, some of our ALS population, are also fairly high on the list, although I think in most states they're not at the top of the list. I think Mm -hmm. the top of the list for most places is nursing home residents and frontline healthcare workers. So that's how things are going to be distributed. The Moderna vaccine is not as finicky, thank God. It it doesn't require uh, minus 80 degrees to be transported. It can last for uh, several days or even, I think, maybe more than a week outside of the freezer and the refrigerator. So it's going to be a lot easier to handle. That one is also, just to talk about where that one is, that one's going up for FDA approval as well. They submitted their application a few days ago, and they're probably going to be considered very shortly after the Pfizer vaccine. So before the end of December, I think we'll have an FDA decision on the Moderna vaccine. And once that's done, it too will be distributed. Uh, Between the two of them, initially, they had promised uh, an initial round of 20 million each, and I think they're each contracted for 100 million doses, which will continue to roll out through January and February. So it's a little hard to tell, you know, state by state, there are some variations. So depending on the state that you're in, they're going to have a little twist on the theme, but but most of them, you know, hew to these basic principles.
1: Right. Thanks for that breakdown, doctor. I feel like we're already learning so much from you. So thank you again for, for coming on the show. I want to shift gears uh, a little bit for a second. You recently had an article published, I think it was in the Tampa Times, about what you called COVID long haulers which discussed some of the long-term neurological effects of COVID-19. We'll definitely link to
0: that article in our show notes, but can you give our listeners a kind of a summary of what you learned on that front? Sure. So, you know, we all know about the acute syndrome of COVID, which is the really dangerous part where, you know, if it's possible to progress from infection to usually pneumonia, very destructive pneumonia that can actually just uh, tear up your lungs and kill you. Mm. And this is the big danger. And of course, a lot of other complications can come in the hospital from uh, from this but something else is emerging from those in those individuals who survived covid of course we are not surprised when someone who had to go to the icu with covid and was on the ventilator and barely made it for them to have some persistent medical problems is not a surprise to anyone so that was expected but what we didn't expect is something that we're seeing uh, as the longer this disease goes on. And bear in mind that this is a brand new bug. It didn't exist before about a year ago. And so we are just learning about this and have been learning and, and really trying to learn as quickly as we possibly could. But we're still learning and we're going to be learning for years to come about the effects of this virus. So one thing that's surprising to us is that there are people who had mild to moderate infection. They didn't go to the hospital. They didn't have to go on the ventilator. They had, you know, uh, a moderate case of the flu or even some cases of case of the flu, but then they begin to develop symptoms after recovery that were persistent. So, you know, we all know that when you get the flu, you feel really fatigued, for example, but mm-hmm. some people don't get over that. And in some individuals that that's uh, that feeling of fatigue, sometimes debilitating fatigue is continuing sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months. Along with that, a host of other symptoms can also appear and persist. Cognitive symptoms, that is a decreased uh, immediate and short-term memory, troubles focusing, troubles with what we call visuospatial function, which uh, is, is your ability to navigate around your computer screen and, and the mm. environment around you, a big problem in the 21st century, and just slowness of thinking, what we call you know cognitive clouding, feeling off uh, and, and not sharp in many people, this is something that's just going on and on. Dizziness can be another part of it. Muscle aches can also be a part of it. And some of these people have these uh, symptoms to a degree that are annoying. Others have them to a degree that they are disabling them and they lose their jobs and they cannot function and they're truly wow. disabled. Um, that we are We're trying to figure out exactly what this population is, but what we have found is that 20% of people who have had COVID of any severity seem to have per- at least one bothersome symptom two months later after mm. recovery, two months after recovery from initial infection. So that's very serious. I think a lot of young people feel like, ah, uh, COVID, who cares? I'm young. You know, my, my risks are low. Right. Uh, I'm going to go out and do my thing. And, you know, everybody's sick of being cooped up. Uh, and so they do, and and but the truth of the matter is that that uh, number one, you, know, you you might draw the black bean even if you are young, and young people can die from this and are dying from this, but not nearly as at the same rates as older people. But this business of of the long haulers that includes this includes a, a much larger number of young people than get severe COVID infection, and that can this can really in, interfere with your life. We've seen, seen things like this with influenza, but it seems to be very rare with influenza. Whereas you know usually you feel bad for a couple of weeks. It takes you a couple of weeks, two, three weeks to get your, uh, your uh, bearings and your energy back. But with this one for these individuals, we don't know how long it's going to last. Some people have had this up to six months so far uh, and we don't know where it's going to go, but it's, it's yet another reason to really be diligent about protecting yourself against infection because we don't have a treatment for this, uh, this complication. So uh, the best way to avoid it is to avoid getting infected in the first place. Mm
2: -hmm. Dr. Gooch, you mentioned uh, the flu a couple of times and uh, you know, I, I get a flu shot every year. I know it's recommended. Get your flu shot every season and is there reason to anticipate that we're going to be getting a coronavirus shot every year? Is that is that on the horizon or is this something that we're going to it's a one and done and once we reach herd immunity we move forward?
0: Yeah, that really gets to the persistence of immunity after infection or after vaccination. And obviously because this is a brand new bug that's still under study, but I will tell you what we know about our um uh, data so far in regards to this. So what we, what we have been able to do is to uh, look at the, uh, the formation of immunity in the form of antibody-based immunity and cellular-based immunity, and I won't bore you with the details of all that, but what we're able to do is essentially chart uh, a trajectory of where immunity is going and how long we think it's going to last. So it'd be like plotting the The course of the rocket from launch based upon, you know, looking at the first 30 seconds of it arcing up into the sky. Mm -hmm. So when we do that, uh, it appears as though that coronavirus immunity from infection may last years. So that's very encouraging, and we know from other coronaviruses, some of which cause what we refer to as the common cold, do have immunity that lasts for at least a couple of years in some individuals. We know we have very hard uh, data about uh, immunity lasting, you know, for six months, eight months, and people who've had the infection so far, and we're tracking some of those individuals. Uh, But I think there's every reason to believe that it will last at least a year, perhaps years. In answer to your other question, though, I do believe that we will be getting uh, a coronavirus vaccination every year. Are they going to mix that with influenza? I don't know. Maybe it'll be two separate shots. Maybe it'll be some flu cocktail that they're giving you. I don't know what form it will take yet. But yeah, I would anticipate probably annual shots uh, just like influenza. And that raises another question too, kind of tangentially, but important. Uh, you know, the part of the reason you get a flu shot every year is, is not just waning immunity, but also the influenza virus is notorious for mutating. So every year it's a few different strains. And also there are several different strains out there and uh, different years, different strains kind of step to the front of the line and and cause problems. So you might get uh, vaccinated against three one year, the next year it's a different three that are coming at you. So they try to anticipate which strains are gonna be the ones that that cause problems that year and that's why then they mix up the cocktail in the flu virus every year for you to try to protect you. Sometimes they guess right, sometimes their guesses are kind of off and they miss it, it's a worse flu season. So that happens too. With coronavirus, there are many coronaviruses You know, will we uh, ultimately I'd like to see a situation where we have a a cocktail virus against many of the coronaviruses because, you know, the cure that long sought for cure for the common cold, you know, they can send Mm. a man to the moon, but we can't cure the common cold. Well, you know, it's conceivable that this technology, this RNA uh, vaccine technology against coronaviruses be a cure for the common cold eventually. Uh, That's going to be further down the line, of course. But I I think especially after the international chaos that this has caused, I think we can probably anticipate annual vaccination uh, for the coronavirus. After a few years, maybe we'll discover that, you know, it lasts for two or three years. You only have to get it every three years or four. But in in the beginning, I would say probably, yeah, it's probably going to be annually. Herd immunity is another issue that you raised, and I wanna talk about that because people have a lot of questions about that. So what is herd immunity? So if you imagine a virus as a forest fire and and people as the trees, you know, forest fire needs uh, to be able to leap from tree to tree. So you gotta have this congregated forest and the fire has to be able to reach one tree to another to continue to spread and, and burn down the forest. So it's similar with infections. They leap from person to person. That's the way they propagate. And uh, how do you stop them? Well, what we're trying to do now is, is put up fire breaks, if you will, in the form of masking and social distancing and, uh, and, all, and, and hand washing. And, and by the way, uh, studies have projected that if everybody, I mean, everybody mm-hmm. did that consistently, that we could probably cut infection rates by 90%. But, you know, it's it's a big uh, challenge, obviously, to get people to uh, adhere to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it work? It just keeps the virus from leaping to person to person. Pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. So the vaccine does the same thing by providing immunity. And when you, uh, just like a forest fire, when you reach a certain point and there are just not enough trees that are going to catch fire, the forest fire stops. So what is that point in terms of the population? Well, it's, it's debated a little bit, but it seems to be between 50 and 70 percent from other studies of other viruses. So in most people, I'm going to say 60%, you know, as, as a good number, halfway between those two estimates. Remember also that people are getting infected every day, which is not good, and, and people are dying every day, and and we haven't talked about, you know, the current rise and which is quite scary and I think Mm. this is going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better a lot more people are going to die Mm. so you know these these individuals who are out there saying we should just let the forest burn and eventually it'll burn itself out not a good idea right there's a lot of people that way uh but um but once but having you know looking at the numbers we have And by the way, we're not detecting everybody. Those numbers just show us the people who have been tested. So Mm -hmm. other studies looking at community populations have tested people's blood for evidence of infection, people who didn't get tested otherwise. And they estimate now that for every person who has a positive coronavirus test at the time of infection, there are probably eight people out there who had it and didn't get tested. Mm -hmm. Because many people are asymptomatic and don't have any symptoms at all with this infection. So, but that gives them some immunity. So you uh, so if you take that number and you multiply it out, it would would suggest to us that about a third of the U.S. population, say 30 percent, is already has already been infected and already has some immunity that gets us halfway there. So we have about 300 million people in the United States. So if we have, say, 100 million that uh, and we need to get to 200 million, that means we need to get another 100 million vaccinated and or infected. People keep getting infected, as you know, uh, and you know, by leaps and bounds. There are going to be several million more people infected, uh, you know, by the time all uh, we begin to even roll out the vaccine. So let's say we get another 50 million people infected with the next two or three months, which is not impossible, unfortunately. Mm. And, uh, you know, that gets us halfway there. And then we really just need to get another 50 million vaccinated, right? So that means hundred million doses. And uh, that's, we contracted for that. We, we have two companies we've contracted for the as So we have uh, hundred million with each so one, if using this you know, somewhat speculative scenario, uh, you could anticipate that herd immunity will, should begin to happen in the, in the spring, late spring, provided we are able to roll out these vaccines as we are planning to do, and provided that these companies can ramp up production as they claim they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pfizer is saying, both Pfizer and Moderna claim that they will have, each of them, more than a billion doses by the end of 2021. Wow. Now, they are supplying the world, okay, but, but uh, nevertheless, you know, one would imagine that the U.S. would be able to get, uh, you know, in on those and be able to hopefully achieve that 60% herd immunity somewhere, I would guesstimate, between the April-June timeframe, if the rollout happens as anticipated. And by the way, if people take the vaccine, so that's the other problem. So they've done uh, surveys. Fortunately, it's improving a little bit. I think uh, a few months ago, 50% of people said they weren't taking it. More recently, 30% of people say they aren't taking it. Um, You know, if if our projections are right about people who are are previously infected, then we don't really need uh, even 50% to get it. And especially with a 95% effective vaccine. I mean, that means almost everybody gets it's gonna be immune. So that's good. That lowers the number required. So uh, I would say that if we could get Fifty to 100 million people vaccinated. They'll say a third of the population for sure. Uh, given who's already had it, I think we should achieve herd immunity when you add those to people who are already infected. We're of course shooting for higher than that. We want everybody to get vaccinated uh, the, you know, that we possibly can. And if you don't get vaccinated, it doesn't matter. If herd immunity, if we achieve herd immunity, doesn't mean you're not going to get it. I mean, it's out there. It's going to be. It's going to go from being what we call pandemic to endemic, which means mm-hmm. it stops being a charging bull but is instead lurking in the bushes and could jump out and get you. So, you know, for personal protection, everybody needs to get this vaccine, uh, not only for, uh, to protect others, but to protect themselves.
1: Again, thank you for explaining the science in an accessible way, doctor. Aside from explaining the science and laying out the facts as you just did, what other ways can the government and communities encourage folks to partake in this, what should be a mass vaccination?
0: You know, life, uh, medicine, but life itself is a numbers game, okay? So every time we get into our car and drive anywhere to the grocery store, we could die. There's a chance that we will not survive to get to the grocery store We'd be hit by an 18-wheeler. The chances are very small. On the other hand, you know, 30 to 40,000 people a year die in motor vehicle accidents in the United States. So it's not uncommon. You hear it on the news every night, you know, or you, you're going to your commute in the morning and it's all backed up because, you know, some poor person was smashed to a pulp by a, in a car accident with their car. And we just accept that because it happens. Oh, yeah. Well, that doesn't stop us from going to the grocery store. Doesn't stop us from going to work in our cars because we balance uh, in our in our minds the risk benefit ratio of that and everything is risky. You know, uh, waking up is risky, sleeping is risky, not eating is risky, eating is risky. You can die with all those activities. Everything in life has an element of risk, but we use, you know, our logical brains and say, the benefit I get is greater than the risk of doing it. So we do it. And people need to understand that principle. People don't step back and think about that on a day-to-day basis. A lot of this goes on at the subconscious level, and people take a lot bigger risk than this, you know, for all kinds of crazy reasons just to have, you know, a fun weekend or whatever. I mean, uh, people do all kinds of risky things. So people need to understand how this works. And in medicine, we're all the time thinking, what is the risk of this treatment? What is the risk of this disease? Is the risk of the treatment uh, worth it? You know, because everything has, every treatment has risk. You, you take a, a Motrin over the counter, there's a small risk you'll have an anaphylactic reaction and die. It's, it's probably one in a million, but it can happen. So, but we take it because it's, that's a very low risk and we have a headache and we want to get over the headache and it's worth it. Same with the vaccines. So we don't know exactly what the risk of these vaccines will be, but they've done these studies, one in 30,000 people. And people say, well, what about, what about side effects? Even first of all, please believe in science. (laughs) It's, it's it's not hokum it's not a hoax or political illusion or you know this is this is real science it's it's been developed over decades this is how we understand the world and how we make logical decisions everybody uses logic to make decisions every day some more so than others but 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 you know it's it's how we function as human beings so this becomes, you know, a logical decision. So what is the risk? Well, people say, okay, I believe the studies. Let's, let's Hopefully you believe the studies and, and believe the FDA and its panel of independent experts is going to make a logical scientific decision, which they do all the time. It's their job. So if you believe that, hopefully you do. If you don't believe that, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to convince you of anything. But if you, if you accept that, then what I'm going to say is, okay, some people raise a legitimate point, which is, well, what about... Uh, side effects that emerge when it's rolled out to much larger numbers of people. So this is a study of 30,000 people. What happens when 100 million people get vaccinated? Aren't you going to discover rare side effects that didn't appear in the first studies? And the answer is probably so. Mm. How severe will they be? We don't know. But then you got to, again, think about the numbers. So if you do this 30,000-person study and you didn't see any serious side effects, and over half of those people got uh, the vaccine, say 20,000 people, that means there were no serious side effects in 20,000 people. So it's likely that any serious side effects are going to occur less than one in 20,000 people. So just to give you a a standard of comparison, your odds of getting murdered this year are between one in 10,000 and one in 20,000. Hmm. Okay. So it would be this, uh, your odds of being struck by lightning or one in a hundred thousand. If you're in Florida, your odds of being struck by lightning or less than one in 10,000. So you, you know, you, you, these are all risks that you got to think about. You got to have a standard of comparison to understand what it means. A risk of less than one in 10,000 is a, is a extraordinarily low risk. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen to anybody. Some people are unlucky. Some people are lucky and win the lottery, you know, with, with the one in a hundred million chance, but hmm. Or some people are struck by meteorites, you know, which is also one in a hundred million lifetime chance. So you're uh, so you you, these things happen, but they're extraordinarily rare. So it means that, you know, you're and by the way, if you don't get the vaccine and you were to go about your usual activities, you know, especially as the virus is raging, you would have a nearly 100 percent chance of contracting the virus. If you're over the age of 65, your chance of well, especially if you're over the age of uh, 75 or 80, your chance of dying from the virus to be 10 to 20%. So, you know, that, that, that just, those odds are bad, bad. Mm-hmm. And if you're a young person, your odds of dying are less than 1%, but they're not zero. Maybe they're one in a thousand, but they're far greater than one in 10,000. So, you know, it's a numbers game. You, you say, okay, I like, these odds are better. I'm gonna go this way. And that's how we do everything in life. In medicine, every time we make a treatment decision, we're thinking about this. And as doctors, you know, this medicine, this risk, this disease, this risk, I'm giving the medicine. And, uh, and that's how we function. So please just, you know, take a step back, take a deep breath, think about how you function every day, try to put aside all the noise in the world and just think about, you know, what's a rational decision to make for me personally. And this is not even to mention your elderly grandma or your parents, or other people that you come into contact with, you know, maybe you'll be okay, maybe you'll kill them, because that's happening every day now. Mm-hmm. So you, you got to think about yourself, you got to of your family, good as society too is out there as well. So, uh, so everybody has to think about that uh, when they're thinking about, you know, the risk benefit ratio of this vaccine, which appears to be really, really good. I mean i'm I'm actually shocked they didn't have a single adverse serious adverse event in in either of these studies. I expect that's it's so rare yeah, it's you amazing. know uh, so that's very reassuring
2: With that in mind with with the the numbers game that you're talking about, Dr. Gooch, is there anything unique or specific to the ALS population as as our listeners are considering um, when and how to approach getting a vaccine?
0: Right, and and just a shout out to the ALS population. I've, this is one of my areas of research uh, and care over the years, so I have a special place in my heart. And of course, they're struggling with a terrible progressive disease. And we're working on some exciting research is going on. We're getting more treatments. Last two, two or three months, we've had uh, two more, a couple more uh, treatments that have come forward. One will likely be approved, and we have others in the hopper that are looking. You know, uh, like they're they're going to be helpful in at least slowing the course of the disease. But it is a, a terrible disease, and these patients, you know, range in terms of how severely they're affected. Some have early disease, and they have mild symptoms, little weakness, but they're still walking, getting around, and not having big problems, although their disease is progressing, and they will eventually get there, perhaps. Other people, of course, are in the later stages of the disease, and they have much more significant problems. So the question that I often get asked by my patients is, am I a vulnerable patient? I have ALS. Am I vulnerable? Well, uh, that, that the, the answer is it depends. If you are walking around, you have no breathing problems, you have no swallowing problems, and you've been diagnosed, you have a little hand weakness or something, and that's the extent of your disease, you are not at high risk. Uh, You you are probably at the the, the disease at that point is not affecting your risk profile. Um, If on the other hand, uh, you are at the later stages of the disease and you have respiratory involvement because the disease eventually causes weakness of the respiratory muscular system and causes problems with breathing, Yes, you're high risk. You have a respiratory disease now uh, that's affecting your ability to breathe and, and ALS patients frequently get pneumonia. And so they're at much higher risk. So if, so I think that's the key. If you have respiratory involvement uh, or if you have big swallowing problems, you can also have difficulty with inhaling uh, your food or the things that you drink and that can get into your lungs and cause pneumonia. If you have either of those things, dysphagia or swallowing difficulties, or if you have, uh, if you're bedridden, uh, that would also put you at high risk because of severe weakness. Usually these things all go together at that stage of the disease. So if you're, if you're in that, that, if you have any of those things, then, then it's likely your neurologist would be able to classify you as a high-risk patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are early in the phase of the disease, even though you have a very serious disease, uh, but it's not that severe yet, you probably will not pass muster as a high-risk patient. Hopefully, if you're in the early stages, you know, before the disease progresses too much, in your case, you will have, you'll be vaccinated because the vaccine is coming. So that's, you know, that's the answer to that question. And I think that's probably the biggest issue on the minds of ALS patients these days. Similarly, caregivers for ALS patients who are severely affected also need to do everything they can to get vaccinated. uh, And I'm sure there are many of them, most of them are already taking great precautions because uh, if they pass that along to their, uh, their loved one or the person they're caring for, uh, they could, you know, cause big problems for that individual. So I know that the caregivers are are taking, you know, great precautions right now. And so they need to be vaccinated as soon as they can too. And obviously if you're over 65, whether you have ALS or don't have ALS, you're at high risk. And since this disease attacks people uh, disproportionately in the 60s and 70s, a lot of these patients will be in that age group, in which case they are at risk by virtue of their age alone. And ALS just layers on top of that. So so age is another consideration, but for younger ALS patients, you know, not not so much. So I think those are the main things to think about if you're an ALS patient. And you know, it's I know people say, well, I have this serious disease. I, I should you know get be able to get the vaccine early. Maybe not. It depends on how bad it is in your case at the at this particular time. But but help is coming. Is it worth, doctor, having a conversation with your neurologist or your primary care
1: physician about you know how your symptoms are progressing and kind of where you're at uh, as you're considering. Um, and and the vaccine is coming.
0: Yes, absolutely. So if, if you have questions about this and you say, oh gee, I don't know, I'm kind of in the middle and I don't know where I sit, uh, definitely talk to your neurologist. I think your neurologist would be the one in this case and say, you know, do you think I would be at high risk? I'm having these breathing problems and usually als patients are being followed we're tracking their their uh, what we call the vital capacity or other measures of respiratory function and we can tell them oh, yeah you're you're you know you you do have some breathing difficulties now and we can we can prove that by our measures and so you are at risk and i will certify that One thing that's not clear to me yet, and I don't think it's been defined at all, is how, who's going to make the decision about uh, these vulnerable, this vulnerable patient population. The CDC has outlined several things that put patients at high risk, but it's a small list. It's things like, um, you know, obesity, and then you have age, we've already talked about that one, diabetes, you have a few other things, but then there are these other group of patients. Let's take, for example, cancer chemotherapy patients. To, whose immune systems have been crippled by the chemotherapy that they're on. And so they're vulnerable to every kind of infection and, and particularly coronavirus. Are they high risk? Absolutely, they're super high risk. So, um, so but they're not in the CDC's, you know, list. So you can't just go with the CDC list. The vulnerable patient population is a lot more patients than are just on that list. So who makes that decision? Is it going to be the state? Are they going to make a laundry list of 200 diseases? Uh, Is it going to be, you know, the doctors are going to write a letter or sign a form or something like that? I don't know. I don't, Nobody's really, it hasn't been worked out yet. So I don't know how outside of the CDC, you know, uh, big categories of patient, vulnerable patients, I don't know how they're going to define, you know, other vulnerable patient groups at risk. Uh, and and uh, I think that's going to roll out to the States probably, uh, but that's going to have to be done too. But, but certainly ALS patients in the categories I've described would be considered vulnerable.
2: So help is on the way, but a lot of details still to be uh, determined.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this is uh, this is kind of like uh, I, I compare this to D-Day in World War Two. You know, uh, it was uh, it, there was a, a lot of uh, pain and uh, and a lot of sacrifice to get to that point. And the battle was itself was very harsh and at its highest level when you're hitting the beaches. Of Normandy, uh, but that was the turning point of the war, and after that, it was just a matter of time. And you know, we were—it was there was going to be more loss and more sacrifice and more death. But uh, at that point, there was no turning back. I mean, that was at that at that juncture, the Nazis were doomed. So it was just a matter of time. So that's where we are now. Uh, coronavirus is doomed. Uh, we need to get the vaccination out there, but the war is not over. And that's why people, you know, must, must, must wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands. You know, those just, it's, it's not that hard. It's a, is it a hassle? Yeah, sure, it's a hassle. Uh, is it a big hassle? Not really. So, you know, you just have to do that. It doesn't mean you have to stay locked in your house. Uh, you know, you can exercise reasonable uh, judgment, get out, follow these guidelines out and about, and, and certainly, you know, not be locked in your house like a prison cell. Uh, but, uh, but people need to pay attention to this. And that's part of our problem now is so many people are not. And, and that's why we're seeing so much death and, and more to come, uh, you know, before we really get the vaccine out there, unfortunately. So please, please, please listeners, uh, follow these precautions. Uh, you may save your own life. You may save your brain from being a long hauler. You may save some of your, the life of a loved one. It's very, very important.
1: That's great advice. And it bears repeating uh, doctor. Thank you. This has been Such an illuminating conversation, and I know uh, that we learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Uh, We really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Uh,
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you again to Dr. Clifton Gooch for giving us the time and insight this week. Um, You know, like you said at the outset, a robust conversation and I got to tell you, I could have talked for another hour with Dr. Gooch so much more. Maybe we can have him back sometime in 2021. You know, he thinks we're turning the corner. He, He called it Day. And so, you know, maybe once we're on the other side of this, we can bring him on to talk about some of those uh, trials that he was talking about on ALS treatments.
1: Absolutely. Extremely knowledgeable on the subject. And I mentioned we are going to link to that article about COVID long haulers that was published in the Tampa Times if you want to take a look at that. Thanks again, though, to Dr. Gooch. A really great conversation, important conversation. That's going to do it for today's show. Be sure to tune in next week as we do expect uh, to talk to Abram Bielowskis about uh, some of the biggest news in ALS advocacy this year. And remember to subscribe to the show at ConnectMeALS.org or wherever you listen. And if you would rate and review us on those various uh, podcast apps of choice, that'd be much appreciated as well. That helps other people discover the show. You can also follow us on the socials at Facebook and Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter.
0: Thank you all for listening, and we'll connect with you again soon.